Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Is this really the worst time to buy a home? And I asked the question because that's the headline on Rhonda Kaysen's story in the uh, New York Times. What did you find? Well, I found that we're in a very similar position that we were in last year where interest rates are really high, but home prices have actually continued to climb um, despite that. So home prices are up about 3% um, and interest rates, even though they're down from their peak, they're still high, which means that you're really buying a luxury product right now. You're buying a house at the top of the market and you're paying top dollar for it. How did prices increase at the same time as mortgage rates? Well, right. It seems counterintuitive because usually if interest rates go up, prices are going to drop. But the demand didn't fall. People still want to buy homes because the economy has held on and people have salaries and their jobs. You know, they're still employed. We're not in a deep recession. Things are pretty good overall. So people who wanted to buy wanted to buy a home. But sellers were in a position where they're sitting on a house that they may have refinanced or bought during the pandemic with the lowest interest rates in U.S. history. So if you have a home and your interest rate is 2.5 percent, it's a really bad idea to sell that home for and, and buy a new one where the interest rate will be 7 percent or 6 percent. So those those sellers just didn't list their homes. So the inventory was at historic lows. We saw the lowest number of home sales that we've seen in decades. Okay, so that's the reason. It's those low interest rates, which are basically constraining the supply of homes for sale. Exactly. So supply was at historically low levels. There's just really nothing on the market to buy. So if you were trying to buy a home, you still found yourself in a bidding war, which seemed disorienting and confusing. And there's no real incentive for sellers to start listing their houses again right now, because even though interest rates are a little bit lower, they're about 6.6% for a 30-year loan, they're still a lot higher than they were in 2021. Okay, then what about renting? Because some of those people who are owning those low interest rate homes might want to just then hang on to them, but rent them out. Right. Actually, in New York, we are seeing that a lot of, um, there's a new supply of condos and co-op units from homeowners who are trying to sell decided not to and are taking advantage of really actually historically high rents. So rents are still up about 20% nationwide since before the pandemic. Um, But we're also seeing, which is strange and sort of confusing, is the biggest influx of new rental housing that we have seen in decades. So there's a million new multifamily units being built in cities all across the country, and about half of them are coming coming online and are available this year, which is more new housing than we've seen in decades. And it's strange. It doesn't make sense. But the reason that's happening is because if you go back to the pandemic, Developers saw all these people rushing out to rent homes and rents went up and they decided to start building. And those homes are now becoming, those apartments are now becoming available to rent this year, which will keep rents from going up any higher. They may not fall very much, but they're probably peaked and you're probably going to be able to negotiate maybe a free month's rent with your landlord, or maybe you can get free parking or you can get a discount on the gym membership. Um, Now's a good time if you're renting a new apartment to ask for a deal. Oh, this doesn't seem sustainable with the select few owning homes and rental prices high, having to negotiate, getting a roof over your head. What's something that needs to happen in order for this to right side itself for more people to get into the home ownership market? We need new housing. That's really the the crux of this whole story. And, you know, homeowners have been staying in their homes longer. That even kind of predates this interest rate issue. 
um, homeowners are just are staying put longer. And we really haven't built enough new housing um, of all types of housing since the um, fiscal crisis of 2008. So we are under we have underbuilt anywhere from two million units of housing to seven million units of housing, depending on who you ask. So what we need is we need a lot of new housing and we need to have all different types of housing in all different markets all around the country. And until we really start to see that um, shortage refill, we're going to continue to be in a position where the cost of owning a home is really, really expensive and is burdening more and more people across income levels. This is a, a debate we're having here in Seattle, especially where we seem to outpace the rest of the nation when it comes to housing prices. And one of the reasons is because of uh, restrictive zoning and yes. um, close into the city, which uh, makes no sense. I've, I've seen very few cities that have the same kind of uh, uh, large lots as close to downtown as we do. So are, are we alone there or are there other cities that are going through this this same debate? No, you're you're absolutely not alone. Um, cities along the coast. I mean, I'm in the Northeast in New York. We have similar problems. Um, single family zoning rules were built for a different time. Um, older cities are really struggling to update their zoning. Where you're seeing the most new housing coming online is in the Sun Belt um, and in the South, where zoning rules are looser and the population is growing. It's also cheaper to build in those areas. Um, labor costs are really high. Um, I would imagine in Seattle, and they're really high in New York. Um, and all those things just make it harder to build new housing. And we also have much older housing stocks. Um, Seattle's a you know lovely city with beautiful older homes. And um, they're more expensive to maintain. And there's not a huge amount of land available to build new ones on. So who is the gatekeeper stopping this housing from being built? <laughs> is it city councils? Is it Republicans? Is it Democrats? Is it let's let's where who's the boogeyman? <laughs> Well, actually, surprisingly, this is one of the few issues that has some bipartisan agreement. People nice. on both sides of the aisle seem to want new housing. Um, there's also, you know, elements of nimbyism. Um, you can want new housing in theory, but when um, a developer comes in planning to build a multifamily project across the street from your house or down the road and you worry about schools and roads and impacts on all those things, you may show up to the town council meeting and try to um, block it from happening. Um, homeowners like to see their home prices rise, right? And if a lot of new housing comes on, that can slow those prices down. So there's a tension between the people who already own and the people who want to own. And there's also um, larger desires. You say we need new housing, but you don't necessarily want that housing right across the street from you. So on a lot of levels, it's hard to... Um, get the housing moving and you know, it's hard to get these to, to change the way people think and the zoning rules have been in place for decades and those laws have to change and people sometimes resist changing them Rhonda case and rice with new york times her story is headlined is this the worst time to buy a house thank you Rhonda. thank you up at 7 35 in today's commentary the dangerous temptations of a political crowd but first, we're going to take a look at the reemergence of tourism in Seattle. Since the pandemic, we've been keeping an eye on the state of downtown. Uh, I'm down there like two or three days a week to, uh, you know, catch my uh, exercise. And uh, it's been encouraging. And uh, we had a pretty upbeat report from Visit Seattle for uh, last year's tourism count. So we've invited Michael Woody, who is with 
visit Seattle. He's in charge of community engagement and public affairs, which means you basically sell Seattle to the rest of the country, right? We sure do. And, you know, you talked about uh, how do we sell it in the rain. Yes. Uh, we actually create uh, kissing in the rain booths uh, that we That's place right. in all of our key feeder markets uh, to help promote why you would want to come and kiss in the rain. That's right. Those booths actually have, like, the rain. I love that. That's, yeah. Yeah. So all right. romantic. So what did the report for last year uh, show in terms of the recovery? You know, we're certainly on our way back. Uh, when we look at uh, what we saw in terms of visitation, we had over 33 million people that came and visited Seattle uh, during the year. Uh, we had a lot of great uh, economic impact, and that's really one of the things that we like to lean into because it does good for everybody. Uh, so about $10.2 billion. Wow. An economic impact. For how does that area. compare to the where, where it was pre-pandemic? Um, it's still got a way to go. Um, how, how far? Yeah, ways. What is that? Uh, a ways. Um, pre-pandemic, uh, we are closer to about uh, thirteen uh, billion. So, a little bit to go. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what is key to making uh, a full recovery happen? You know, it's a number of things. You know, first of all, uh, it's certainly uh, finding new ways to encourage people to come during what we call the cozy season. Um, so uh, when we... Oh, it's the best, it, right? It is Soups, the best. Soups, blankets, fireplaces, Right. Rain. So so any anything that we can do to help lift visitation and people coming to visit this great place during those uh, times when it's not summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that happens through that meetings market. So... Uh, privileged, right, to have a new convention center uh, downtown. So we've expanded what we had, uh, almost doubled uh, with the addition of Summit. And for us, uh, it really opens up a lot of opportunities to bring in larger meetings that can accommodate uh, through both of those new facilities uh, and help to uh, bring more people in, more foot traffic, more shoppers, more diners, uh, and really, uh, really help lift the entire industry. For a lot of locals, especially in the suburbs, visiting Seattle can be a, a task, you know, especially with the headlines about open drug use and the camps out there. It's just not an attractive place to bring your family. You never know what you're going to see. So how do you combat that, not just for locals, but for the reputation Seattle has outside of the city. Absolutely. You know, first of all, for locals, we encourage you to come back and try it. Uh, You know, many people haven't been downtown for a very long time um, and have a perception that maybe has changed. And that's what we really think has happened downtown. Uh, For those people who are traveling in from out of Seattle and are coming here for meetings, conventions, for leisure, um, we continue to share the stories about what's happening here locally, how the, the elected officials are leaning in and creating some opportunity to improve what we're seeing downtown. With the new makeup of the city council, what are they promising you as far as making Seattle more visitable, if that's a word? Right. Um, No specific promises. Mm. Um, But, you know, what we saw during the whole campaign was that's what they were really leaning into. How did they help to improve that? Um, And and that's going to be key for everything that that we do. It's going to be key for that residential experience um, and as well as for the visitor. Right. We want to have it be a place where we all love to live. Um, And then in turn, it becomes a great place to visit. Still a lot of boarded up businesses post-pandemic. Where are we business-wise? I don't have a number on the businesses, um, but, you know, I I do see um, some coming back. And what's helping with that is when we have decisions like uh, required uh, days back in the office uh, for some of our large employers downtown. Uh, When we got to the point where we weren't seeing them uh, at all, uh, it was really a challenge, especially in the South Lake Union area. What do you need that you're not getting from either the politicians or anything else? You know, I that's a great question. Um, you that's know, I why think, I asked it. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> Dave's known for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> well, you know, a couple things. You know, certainly from uh, the state perspective, if we start there, it's really making sure that we have the funding that we need as a tourism economy as on a state level uh, to help promote Washington State to the rest of the world. Um, Would it and, hell if it was easier to make movies here, for example? Of course, yeah. <laughs> okay, what, what does it take to get that to happen? Um, more sleepless in Seattle. Oh, <laughs> um, you think they should remake it? I, I think they should. Yeah. Really? That's well, controversial. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, classic. You, who would you cast in that remake? Ooh. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Could I do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'd be fun. I'd yeah, live sure. in a houseboat. Think about um, it. You know that, and then we have uh, the... Excitement around boys in the boat, um, mm-hmm. you know, although uh, not it wasn't filmed, filmed here, here, but about here, right? <laughs> yeah, so right. that's that's a big part of it, too, yeah. to what, really what, help to. What new is there to do in Seattle? Because, you know, I was just down there. I was at the Crocodile seeing a concert. Haven't been there in 20 years. But I feel like when you come to Seattle, it's kind of the same stuff over and over again. If you've lived here, what's new? Yeah, you know, a, a lot of new happening in um, our art and culture uh, facilities as far as exhibits, as far as things to see. Um, you continue to see improvements with old staples. And I think a lot of things, you know, that maybe everything is old that's new again. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of how know. it felt going to the crocodile. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you but, know. but, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, um, intention and investment around things like Pike Place Market. You know, how do, how do those things continue to improve and expand? And, well, the waterfront. I mean, the waterfront's going to be amazing. quite a bit, and that changes that changes pretty much every week. And it's it's bigger than I thought. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, and it, it, there's a lot happening there. You know, the the new aquarium addition is going to be just incredible, um, and the fact that um, so many things that we're seeing are being done with a lot of intention. So if you look at the new um, expansion of the aquarium, to have that public access space to walk underneath the uh, huge tank so you can go and experience part of that without having to pay to get in. Um, So there's a lot of things like that, I think, that are happening. Increasing the walkability is huge, too. If you look at Pike and Pine and all the changes that are happening there, that first block of Pike Street right outside of the market is now pedestrian. Should we talk about Third and Pine? (laughs) Third and Pike? Who wants to do that? <laughs> well, yeah. we do because, yeah. you know, we don't want visitors coming to town. What does and then, it take to get the plywood off the building? Yeah, so yeah, and get the criminal element out of that. I mean, that has plagued the city for a long time. It seems nobody can find a solution to, and tourists have to walk from Westlake Center through that corridor to get to our beautiful Pike Place Market. Yeah, we. Um, it, it's a challenge, uh, absolutely. And it's a visual challenge and it's an opportunity for things to be done differently at that intersection. Um, what we end up up, uh, doing quite often is uh, we uh, have creative wayfinding um, and you know help visitors to um, uh, navigate um, avoid yeah. avoid yeah. yeah you're being um, so kind in your words right you really, you're <laughs> trying so hard especially man. the cozy season that's yeah. genius yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you know. during this cozy season yeah. carefully avoid this <laughs> right. pike and pine corridor take right. a lazy walk around the block yeah, yeah. I love that there good you for go. you Here's yeah. Well, good luck because uh, I'm I'm personally rooting for downtown Seattle. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you were very excited, very excited about what is possible there. We're excited to bring people here, um, and what we're finding is when we're talking to people about what their experiences are, they've been very positive. Uh, we're doing a lot more now with leaning into how the locals feel about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very new thing for our type of an organization to lean in locally, uh, and we're doing that. We're in the middle of a resident sentiment study right now to really get a better feel for what we as 
as residents of Seattle feel about or know about the tourism industry? How do we feel about it in general? Mm -hmm. Um, And do we see how it benefits us? Um, And we want to make sure that we're finding those key areas to help share that. What is the what is the value to me as a resident to have 33 million people come and visit here every year? All yeah. right. Looking so, forward to hearing that. Yeah. Michael Woody from Visit Seattle. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. People who have been incarcerated often have trouble finding job opportunities, but in San Francisco, a nonprofit is helping them find careers in the culinary industry. Growing up, Devin Jordan had a lot on his plate, but these days he's able to deal with whatever life dishes out. Jordan telling CBS affiliate KPIX-TV. This is probably the furthest thing from what I envisioned my life to be. After being in and out of prison for years for various offenses, a total of 16 years actually, Jordan suddenly found himself on the outside with little to no prospects. Nobody was willing to give me a shot because of my past. Then he stumbled on a place called Farming Hope and went from serving time to serving meals. They gave me a shot here. They uh, accepted me into the culinary arts apprenticeship. And that's kind of what reignited my passion. Today, he's a chef in charge of creating a three-course meal that easily rivals some of the Bay Area's most popular hotspots. We have a three-cheese mac and cheese topped with the garlic panko breadcrumbs. For the second course, we have a garlic-crusted roast beef with a vegetable gravy and roasted vegetables. And then to end it, we got an olive oil cake with homemade whipped cream topped with fresh pomegranate. Ooh, anybody hungry? That sounds good to me. Farming Hope is a nonprofit training program that helps people who've either been incarcerated, homeless, or are survivors of violent crimes. Carrie Rogers is Farming Hope's co-executive director. When you're overcoming obstacles in your life and trying to move on to your next chapter and re-enter the workforce, you may be the last person called back um, for a job interview or never called back. And that's not the only thing that sets Farming Hope aside. The meals Jordan serves are free. Every single one of the customers is food insecure. The only payment accepted is a thank you. Rebecca Nichols said she came with her great grandson. Oh my gosh, it's an elegant dinner with tablecloths. And for Jordan, it was a reminder that sometimes all it takes to change a life is a helping hand a delicious meal with a side of redemption. I get to do what I love for a passion, but I'm also helping people. That place again called Farming Hope. And that's time for G. Scott from the G. and Ursula Show. Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troy wrote an op-ed in the Tacoma News Tribune saying that this state has been uh, operating on the principle of catch and release when it comes to pretty dangerous criminals. Now, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, in full disclosure, you are not a fan of Ed Troyer. So uh, nope, not at all. Accurate to say. Nope. What did you think of of some of the examples he brought up in his op-ed, where he basically listed uh, a bunch of incidents involving uh, known felons shooting at police and endangering their lives? Yeah. Well, first of all, I do know this. I do know that uh, they have an exception for violent. And so if you shoot at the police, there's probably not a good chance that you're getting out of jail, right? Like, mm-hmm. they're going to keep those. But I want to just go history, history lesson. Let's go back to uh, late 2022. Uh, first, I want to say that Sheriff Ed Troyer does run, basically, to Pierce County Jail, which until some point in 2023 was not accepting new bookings for misdemeanors and things like that. Pierce County Sheriff spokesperson Sergeant Darren Moss uh, in the fall of 2022 had this to say on the lack of staffing. 
Because of these low staffing numbers, most misdemeanors and even some felonies do not mean jail time. And everybody will tell you that they do want people held accountable for the crimes they're committing. But if we don't have anybody willing to step up and fill these roles, we're going to have to continue to operate at a lower staffing level and a lower um, inmate housing, which is not going to be good for the community where we're going to see more booking and releasing. At that time, down the downtown Tacoma jail down there, it was budgeted for to hold 1,300 inmates at the time. It was only 811. The reason why I'm saying that is because what the sheriff says today, I think everyone can agree with that. We are all tired of hearing about some of these same folks that are committing some of these crimes and just going back in and out and they're able to just catch and release. Right. I agree with that part. Everybody's frustrated with that. I just am sketchy and looking at the timing of this, right? Like, now you want to talk about this? Where were you at in all of 2023 to talk about this very topic, to be on that? I think he was tied up in court, right? Well, I didn't want to say that, but there you go. Uh, well, it's so, true. I mean, he... <laughs> you no, know, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Right? He had other things going on. Yeah. So, my only thing is, is a, a lot of times, Dave, that... When we talk about these topics, we talk about them as, and a lot of times from a from in a political side of things, politics. There's there's buzzwords and things that are said. Oh, they don't want to do anything. Oh, they don't want to do anything. Right? When I just played you a sound of your PIO at the time saying, telling the people the reason why, talking about staffing. Let's go back to the staffing at that time. Staffing at that time, um, it was it was rough. It was, they were overworked. Steve Jones, then, who was in charge of the jails, told the Pierce County Council that the officers were, quote, getting wore out, and most of them were over the age of 50, having to work 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. so right? Are you saying that the sheriff should have done more to staff up the jail if he wants to end capital? And release? Well, well, they they did during that time. I'm just saying that if if you're going to write an op-ed, make sure we give context to what you're talking about. Don't act like this has just come out of the blue anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. This was actually happening. Now, do I think things are getting better? Yes, because at that time, Pierce County Executive Bruce Dammeyer, in uh, that year, at the end, towards the end of 2022, signed a three-year collective bargaining agreement with the Correction Bureau that raises the hourly pay for the new deputies between $32 an hour and $42 an hour. Mm -hmm. And then also, at that time, he also approved the sign-on bonus of $10,000 dollars for new hires and $25,000 for corrections deputies who join from other jails. Mm -hmm. So that's good. So what the so, sheriff can do is raise the pay and get more people to staff the yeah. jails. They can lock, more, uh, lock up more people. Right. And I, I do think that Obviously, I, we're not hearing anything lately in the news. We're not hearing anything about uh, staffing issues with uh, Pierce County, the corrections officers. I think we were all on the same page that those officers, they definitely needed to deserve more pay. And I'm not disagreeing with the sheriff. I think that a lot of us are fed up with some of these same folks that are out here committing these crimes and all that. No doubt about it. Just add context. Mm -hmm. You're talking about Spend it. Spend the money to lock them up. Exactly. Okay. It's time for the state legislative update with Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. And I hear the income tax issue is back, Matt. 
That's right. The uh, the initiative two one 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 was certified by the Secretary of State yesterday, and today and our, our report today, Dave. I'm going to kind of peel back the onion. What's happening in 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 Olympia in terms of how things get done and why bills get said no. We're not going to have a hearing. Other ones get a hearing that maybe shouldn't have, and one of those is this is push for public hearings on all these initiatives we've been talking about. Yet, like I said yesterday, Steve Hobbs. Certified 2111, if that's an initiative that would reinstate the 1984 state law banning local governments from enacting a tax on net income. That law was later overturned in 2019 by a court of appeals. Now, all those other initiatives, so that one's making the ballot. Uh, you have 211, then you have Let's Go Washington has been packing 2109, that's repealing the capital gains tax. You have the 2081, the parents have the right to know. 2113, the reasonable pursuit initiative, and the one 2117, the big one, stop the hidden gas tax going after the Climate uh, Commitment Act. And there's also another one that has not been in, uh, uh, certified yet, 2124, which would uh, opt the state out of long-term health care. There's a lot of them. But the Democrats do not want any public hearings on these. Uh, the House leadership in the Democrats and the Senate, so they don't want any public hearings, despite Republican representatives Mike Steele's request yesterday. And this is what's been going on every, do- every day when these initiatives get, uh, get certified. He was saying that the state constitution says public initiatives is what the legislature must address first before anything else. It clearly states that... This initiative should take precedent over all other legislative matters. I don't think that's left up for interpretation, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, over 400,000 individual citizens in Washington State have sent a very clear message to this legislature. Deal with this initiative and do it in front of everything else. And they do that every time an initiative gets submitted, and then the House Democrats respond. House Democratic Leader Joe Fitzgibbon addressed Steele's comments yesterday this way. I don't have much to repeat from my remarks on the previous motions to this effect. I will just reiterate that I trust our committees to manage their time effectively and do not believe that the full House of Representatives should substitute our judgment for theirs on any matter. Urge a no vote. So the Democrats, Dave, are just refusing to hear, have these public hearings so people can weigh in because the Democrats really believe it's a waste of time. It's going to go to initiative and they're not going to change anything. So so this would I mean, this is a, a bill that would require hearings on all initiatives. No, each time an initiative is submitted to the legislature, the, the House and the Senate have the option to actually approve it. Mm-hmm. Word for word and make oh, it law. I see. So, yeah. So, so they want to start the Demo- uh, the Republicans want to start the process of that. Have a public hearing so people can weigh in about how good or bad it is. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats have no incentive what's to do that. They want these bill. They they don't like these initiatives at all. They're all Republican led. Um, and so this is what happens. All these people want. A lot of people want public hearings, but they're not getting one. So, so these just go to a vote of the people then. It's going to go to a vote of the people, yeah. but they. They just want to parade all this stuff out in front of the governor and, and rub it rub it in his face. So in a way, so that's the political aspects of these initiatives on at, at the uh, legislature. Now, all these people want public hearings, and then they have a hearing 
yesterday um, that I filed what I, they sh- on a bill that is flawed all the way through, and I'm calling it uh, it's about hostile architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, several se- Senate Democrats are backing a proposal that bans cities and towns and counties from installing hostile architecture aimed at preventing homeless camping. The Senate Bill 6231 defines hostile architecture as elements designed to restrict the use of public spaces by individuals experiencing homelessness. Now, in the past, those elements like fencing and large boulders and gravels, they've been working, and, they, and they're and they specifically erected to prevent people from sitting or lying on the street. Mm-hmm. But those would be prohibited under this bill. And the legislation only bans boulders and gravel and fence for stopping homeless camps, specifically for cities and counties and towns. It doesn't address the state doing it. And the state's installing these elements on state lands all along the highways. Now, here's Drew Stokesbury, the House Republican leader. We cannot just allow our streets to become giant tent cities. There has got to be law and order restored. There has got to be prohibition on on public camping in sensitive public places like schools, parks, playgrounds. And I think banning cities from doing this without doing anything else is definitely going to make the problem worse, not better. Now, going back to the highways, the spokesperson for the Department of Transportation told the Olympian that nearly $700,000 has been spent to place boulders in areas where homeless camps once stood. 643000 of that money went to one place, Interstate 5 and Slater Kinney Road near near uh, Olympia. Now, Nicholas Jeffries is an advocate for Seattle Central District, and he told the committee that he spoke in favor of the bill. Come on, we're spending money on rocks. Well, it could be housing people, building tiny home villages, doing something that could actually improve people's lives. Michelle Thomas is with the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance. Using public dollars on hostile architecture is a sign to everyone, housed or unhoused, that our government is not serious about addressing the root causes of homelessness. Now, this bill would take effect January 1st, 2025, allowing local governments time to adjust and comply with new regulations. And it's so flawed that even both sides said there needs to be a lot of work on it. But yet it got a public hearing on this bill as opposed to Hmm. what I was talking previously, where there was everybody wants a public. A lot of people want a public hearing. And the Democrats said no. Matt, Chris has been following this, too. Chris, what do you where do you come down? Yeah, we've been talking about the bouldering for three or four years now, and they just put it in at Slater Kenny between October and January to go along the west side of I-5 on southbound I-5, because that camp was basically five feet from the freeway. And it's a big, long extension. And they'd also put it a little bit further south because the camps under the overpasses were actually undercutting the stability of the roadway. So there was a little bit more of a safety issue there. Uh, But the DOT has been using these a lot more than they ever have before. Uh, And I think they're taking a little lead from uh, ODOT down in Oregon, which has done this significantly along I-5 and Jansen Beach. So Matt, is there a chance this prohibition would pass? Uh, personally, my analyst uh, brain says no because mm-hmm. it's so flawed. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 like what Steve, uh, what Chris was saying, those boulders are there to prevent camps. The argument came up that those boulders were there for safety reasons to stop people from going onto the highway. But that's simply you can just crawl over the boulders and get to the highway. It's really yeah. not stopping you like a fence. Carnegie's Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, thank you. You're welcome. I was like, what? Six years in prison. It's 848. I get it. There you go. It's Mickey time at 848. And it's also time to talk about Ticketmaster. So with us in the studio, along with Mickey, is former concert addict David Burbank. So (laughs) Ticketmaster 
uh, in perennial trouble for the way it is. Is, is there some kind of legislation now to govern this? In some yeah, way? actually. So for the second time here in Washington, a new bill is being introduced in Olympia, and it would make ticket sellers register with the state and just lay all the cards on the table about the cost of the ticket. There would be more transparency to hopefully prevent scammers from selling tickets, you know, and tickets that they don't actually have. So the bill is sponsored by Representative Kristen Reeves. She's from Federal Way. She's a Democrat. And uh, the hope is that it would take effect in 2026 if it passed. It's called the uh, T-Swift Consumer Protection Act. Mm -hmm. And it's about fairness, honesty, especially after, you know, uh, the Taylor Swift presale went haywire and crashed the Ticketmaster website and left fans just absolutely devastated. Is this going to fix anything? The only thing that's going to fix this is if people like David Burbank get less addicted to concert tickets and just say, you know, if it's going to be like this, I'm just not going. If people did that, this would fix itself. I, I I don't think this is going to really fix anything. I mean, the whole entire system needs an overhaul. Mm-hmm. I can remember back in the day, and oh my gosh, I sound like my, my parents mm-hmm. now. I remember back in the day when I wanted to buy a concert ticket, I had to get a wristband. I had to wait in line at a grocery store and get a wristband to go back the next day at 8 a.m. and stand in line, mm-hmm. according to my wristband, to buy the tickets. So, David, what have you, you, I mean, you changed your ticket buying habits because of this. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that it felt like a lot of these issues that we're having with ticket buying weren't there or at least weren't nearly as blatant. So, I'm, I'm trying to think now the last time I had a good ticket buying experience. It was probably in 2019. I bought tickets for uh, an artist named Brittany Howard, who I was really excited mm-hmm. to see with my wife. And they were, you know, $65, $70. This was a, a main marquee artist uh, at the show box, and we were perfectly fine paying that money. The fees were not insane. I think, the, you know, it all added up to probably $80 a ticket. That's what you expect when you go into it. And recently, I tried to buy a ticket to a similarly um, popular artist, this artist, Faye Webster. The ticket said they were $65. I went all the way to checkout at checkout. It would have ended up for two tickets being two hundred and thirty-five dollars with all the fees. Yeah, yes. well, there is that. It's there's something called the Fans First Act, which was introduced by Senators John Cornyn of Texas and Amy uh, Klobuchar of, uh, of Minnesota, which is supposed to go a little further than uh, than you know Reeves' bill. It's supposed to basically help fans know that. They are buying real tickets because what it does is it prevents resellers from selling tickets that they don't have in hand, Mm -hmm. which is what happens a lot. So fans just want easier access to getting these concert tickets and to be assured that when they go to the venue and they scan their ticket, that it's going to allow them in because they don't have a fake ticket. I don't understand why more artists like Taylor Swift don't. And maybe it's the complication of it, but whenever we buy Foo Fighters tickets, they take care of their take, take care of their fans. Mm-hmm. They have their own marketplace. They make sure there's no second market. Like big bands like Taylor Swift bringing in millions of dollars, or like the Foo Fighters who have a lot of money to do this, they need to push back and create their own market to make music accessible to everyone. That's what it's doing. Yeah, is it's it's stopping the live music experience, which. 
is a detriment. I, I live music, it's transformative. Mm-hmm. It's it's uniting. You're there with people you've never met before, and suddenly you all have the same heartbeat, right? Yeah. It's it's beautiful. It is a beautiful way. experience. Yeah. It is, and I know that people just want to be able to buy concert tickets without having to pay college tuition prices. I mean, that's just yeah. basically Who what it boils do, down to. I feel down like to. there's more artists that do that, where they have their own ticket marketplace, or at least they protect it. Uh, with everything they've got to make sure their fans can get a hold of tickets. But I need more of that. There, it's one thing to be transparent on mm-hmm. Ticketmaster. Right. I don't care if they want to tell me what the fees are. I don't want all those fees anymore, like right. you, David, where it yeah. increases the cost fourfold. Well, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, a, a giant artist like Foo Fighters or like Taylor Swift, they have the maybe the power to fight back. Yeah. But for smaller artists that are just touring through towns, they, they're kind of stuck in the stranglehold of Ticketmaster. And um, it's really unfair to not only the people buying the tickets, but also to those artists. And those artists are not getting all those fees. And those artists need those fees. They need those fees to be paid because of the fact that that's how they're being paid to perform at the venue. It's the venue that pays the artists to come and then guarantees, hey, I'm going to pay you $60 million to go and perform at Lumen Field or, you know, uh, wherever, uh, Climate Pledge Arena. And then we've got to sell a certain amount of tickets at a certain amount of dollar to be able to make that money back. All right, good luck with that. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.